welcome to We Can Be. I am Andrew McElwain, Vice President Sustainability for the Heinz Endowments, and I will be your host for today's episode. In 2011, some friends and I started a youth program in the uptown section of the Hill District where I live called Mama Africa's Green Scouts because we wanted to teach our children how to grow food. But more importantly, we wanted them to see us growing food as well, people who look like them. We came together to fight institutional systematic racism that exists in Pittsburgh. We decided as farmers that we have to take food sovereignty into our own hands. It's really up to us to sustain our community and be responsible for it. Thank you. Our guest is a thoughtful and accomplished leader who I am proud to have as a colleague. She is Raquie Bay, the founder and executive director of Black Urban Gardeners and Farmers of Pittsburgh, a collective of black men and women who address the food desert challenges that persist in too many of our neighborhoods. This Homewood-based organization also educates community members about the holistic benefits of urban gardening and farming and has gained national attention for their work in media outlets, including Good Morning America and the Environmental Health News. Recently, they also generated headlines for the recognition that alt-rock stars Rage Against the Machine gave them during their current world tour. As if that doesn't make... Requeeb, enough of a rock star, she also founded and leads Mama Africa's Green Scouts, a grassroots organization that works with youth to encourage awareness of green education, environmental sustainability, and social justice. So, Requeeb Bay, welcome to We Can Be. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. So, a little bit of perspective on the work you do for our community. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's most recent farm census says that black farmers make up less than 2% of producers in the United States. But perhaps over the past few years, a shift is happening, and more individuals and communities inspired by organizations like the one you lead are taking charge of their food and their health and their own future. What do you think is causing this very welcome change? Well, it's the need to grow food. We all have to eat. And I believe that that's the biggest sovereignty out there, especially during the pandemic, where more people wanted to learn to grow their own food because fair food shortages, it's unfortunately still going on, and we want to try to divert it. So especially during the pandemic, more people wanted to learn to grow food. But however, when most people think of farmers, they think of multiple acres and rural wherever. USA. However, urban farming has been around for a very long time. I don't want to say it's trending, however, it is growing. And those of us who just wanted to learn to grow our own food and teach others as well. One of the things I've seen at your farm in Homewood are uh, the different generations of, of people working there and learning. Do you see young people forming a connection to the land and perhaps hope that they can uh, believe it's possible for them to have their own land and grow their own food? Yes. So definitely with the young people, that's what we aspire to do because we're not going to be here forever. And I learn from my elders and the youth as well. We have a saying, we grow food, mind, and leaders because we know we can't do this forever. 
It's hard work. What takes me two hours on a farm, somebody in their late 20s, early 30s can knock it out in a half an hour. So I'm grateful for folks like that. We learn together and we grow together. We have seen a lot of people in the Pittsburgh community growing food, but not just food within our network. We have farmers that are black who are just raising chickens, keeping bees and things like that. I hear them talking about goats. One of our members, he started an orchard park in Homewood, which we're excited about. And, you know, they come to us for advice. We go to them for advice as well. The organization that you founded and lead, uh, Black Urban Gardeners and Farmers of Pittsburgh, was in the news recently, as I mentioned, when the alt-rock band Rage Against the Machine was here and announced donations to Bugs and to the Abolitionist Law Center. Did that announcement come as a surprise? It was. I seen it on Instagram Friday night. I thought the next morning I was dreaming until a reporter called me. Then I was like, oh, it was great. They are an awesome band, but their social justice work fits right into what they do. We're very grateful for what they have done for us, which is going to help the community. For those who may have heard of Bugs for the first time because of the concert here in Pittsburgh, how would you describe the work that your organization does to those new people paying attention to you for the first time? Once again, we grow food, mine and leaders, but like you said, we're a collective group of black growers who came together to work together and fight challenges because of our disparities. But we're also a teaching forum. We teach anyone. We have educational events on our forum. This season, we're doing beekeeping classes and chicken classes as well, and anyone is welcome. We started this because we knew there was a need in the community, and we did it in Homewood because Homewood is a food apartheid area. It hasn't been a grocery store since 1994, and we knew we needed a farm, farmer's market, and a grocery store. And we have a farm, 31,000 square feet, the Homewood Historical Farm. We have a hoop house where we grow food all year, about 10 raised beds, 12 beehives, about 15 fruit trees, and we grow food for the farmer's market, which we do in collective. We founded the Homewood Food Access Working Group that came out of the Homewood Collaborative Plan. So gardens and farms in Homewood, we can unite to make food access easier in Homewood. So collectively, we do a farmer's market. Every Saturday, 10 to 2, we change locations, and we work together for food access. And we give a lot of food away to residents on the block as well. So that's it in a nutshell. Raquib Bay is the founder of Pittsburgh's Black Urban Gardeners and Farmers. When the pandemic hit, Bay's team donated food. No grocery store since 1995. We used the word food apartheid to describe a black or brown neighborhood that is mostly underserved. We went out all summer and we have fed over 3,000 families thus far. You've said in interviews before, including on Good Morning America, about food apartheid and how that impacts communities here. And I wonder if you say a little more about what food apartheid means to you and how you're addressing it. So most folks are familiar with the word food desert, but we are intentional about our words. So we say the phrase food apartheid. That describes black and brown communities where oftentimes you see corner stores where the food is costly and processed. And it's normally labeled through a zip code, black and brown underserved communities that are already facing challenges. So, for instance, our city council representative in 2016, he announced to the community at a community meeting that a family dollar 
what's going to be established. What we did when we started Bucks, we went and asked community what they needed. A grocery store, a farmer's market, that's when we tried our best to comply with that. And the community was upset. And that is the face of food or part that. Not that people don't shop at Family Dollar, but no one should have to go outside of our communities to go grocery shopping. That is a basic need. And transportation isn't feasible for various reasons. Some people might not have bus fare to get to another neighborhood to shop. Dealing with multiple children, working multiple jobs. So what happens is they have to shop at these corner stores with this processed food. And the food isn't healthy. And this happens for generations. You know, but there are groups in Homewood like ourselves and other gardens and farms and organizations that are working to um, eradicate this situation. We're fortunate enough to go under the city of Pittsburgh's Adopt-A-Lot program where you can adopt a blighted lot, which works wonderful for us. But we would like to own our property. We would like to continue to work with city council to make land access more accessible to urban gardeners and farmers. We are also working with the Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture, Russ Redding, to look at throughout Pennsylvania, mainly Philly, Harrisburg, and Pittsburgh. How can we get land? Because some of us, even though we have this wonderful program, the city of Pittsburgh, we still can't afford it. There are other cities that have dollar lot programs, so we're looking to see if we can do that across the state. a different model. Yeah. We have thousands of distressed and vacant lots in Mm -hmm. the city, just the city alone, let alone the Mon Valley, Turtle Creek Valley, elsewhere. URA has uh, categorized about 6,000 lots in the city as potential to push to green, which could be greenways, parklets, Mm -hmm. gardens, or urban agriculture. And that's coming from the URA's real estate division. Can you say a little bit about your experience? Sure. What you're thinking about how we might do this better? City of Pittsburgh's adopt a lot. There's currently about 17,000 lots in the city of Pittsburgh alone, vacant. So a resident can take a blighted lot, turn it into a garden, a farm, a rain garden. It could be a bench with flowers, but it helps go away with blight. And when you build things like that, it reduces crime 48% as well. Then you have farm a lot, which is through the URA. It's basically mirrored after the um, city of Pittsburgh adopted a lot. But here's the difference. Redevelopment can happen, and they can come take our farm away and give us 30 days' notice. Do I think they'll do that to Bugs? No. They know that we're all activists. That's required to be Bugs Pittsburgh. Remember, you have to be an activist. Take some kind of um, interest in what's going on to your community. But it could happen, right? With farm a lot with the URA, you're guaranteed to have your farm. However, you got to pay the taxes, and then that comes in again. We may not be able, not just us, anyone else, be able to afford the taxes. They did approach us several years ago, and we thought about it as a team. We decided to stay with the city of Pittsburgh with caveats, and one of those caveats was like, you know, we can get our land taken away from us. What are you going to do about it? So right before the pandemic, we start talking with city council. Then the pandemic happened. We would like to continue those conversations. But right through here with Adopt-A-Lot, one of our members did go through Farm-A-Lot with the URA. And we all had a meeting with some folks from the URA. And to be honest, the application was inequitable. They were asking questions like, what's your credit score? How much do you make? That's hard for us. However, the URA is committed to work with us, and they currently are to revise the application to make it more equitable, which is a win. So we're taking it from there. There has also been talks that once a person, like, 
graduates, I'm doing air quotes, from the city of Pittsburgh adopt a lot that they can go to farm a lot. I'm, I don't know about that yet. But we're, you know, I'm flexible. Farming, you know better than I, has some risk associated with it. Crops don't turn out quite as planned, weather, pandemics, mm-hmm. a lot of different the variables affect someone doing what you do. You know, patience and resiliency are pretty important to you. Mm-hmm. Does farming provide an opportunity to talk with youth about patience and resiliency in the non-gardening parts of their lives? Yes, it does, and it teaches us as well. This season, for instance, the deer and the groundhogs have gotten more produce than we have. We have seen plants sunburn, harlequin beetles, flea beetles, where we just have to start all over again. But that does teach not only the youth, but adults that nothing is guaranteed. And sometimes you got to go back to square one and how to be resilient because you feel like, okay, I'm done. There, you win. Right. But we know this is important work and we know the food is needed because we sell the food at low cost, but we give a lot of food away. So we just keep on. The groundhogs don't like peppers, so we have a lot of peppers and herbs. <laughs> and one of our network members, she's like, you know what, I'm just going to, because she's like real big on animals. We were at our um, farm, the Enchanted Garden. She has cats, dogs, lizards, chickens, and she's like, yeah, I feed the deer. We got to work coats. I'm like, okay. But that's, that's what she does. That's her beauty. You've said that in addition to teaching students and their families to grow food, you include landscape designs and therapeutic farming Mm -hmm. in your work, which help alleviate other problems people might be facing. Can you say a little more about that? Sure. So four years, we came up with the concept to do care farming or therapeutic farming. And we did our first planting about two seasons ago during a pandemic, where we planted multiple herbs. We teach residents. We started with African-American women who were single, hit up their households. Then we started with veterans but now since the pandemic it's like anybody because we're all stressed out right so these herbs we teach them how to grow them how to process them what they're used for at our medicinal garden or healing garden and they are used for to treat depression anxiety post-traumatic stress disorder but um since then like this season we have a part to where for women's wound health black women in pittsburgh face more challenges and disparities than in any other city um one of them is maternal health where pittsburgh has the highest infant mortality rate for black women in this city unfortunately so we recently had goddess festival where we one in part was focusing on herbs for womb health and pregnancy and breastfeeding and just in general for women. So that's another extension of it. Wow. That's impressive. Thank you. You've began with the 31,000 square foot teaching farm, the Homewood Historical Farm, but you've expanded now beyond that and you're in other neighborhoods behind Homewood too. Can you say a little bit about sort of the growth you've experienced and the other neighborhoods you're working in now? Back in 2011, we actually started Mama Africa's Green Scouts in a garden. There's the Martin Luther King Garden. I'm more of admin instead of being there because I'm in Homewood constantly. But there are other farms and gardens in our network, team members who we help out as much as possible. On the West End, there's Ebony. She has one on the West End on the North Side. Most of them are in Homewood as well. But Homewood Historical Farm is like our base where we all come together and work. The People's Enchanted Garden in Allentown, we just had an educational event there for National Honeybee Day. So we showed them how to build a hive and question and answers. 
our network is about 20-something folks across Pittsburgh. Hybrid Works, our core team is seven people. We have our farm manager, Dina Free Blackwell. We also have our lead beekeeper and orchard manager, Maurice Warford. We have Mr. Gordon Holneck, his farm staff, Carius farm staff. We have Chef Los as well, and two of my daughters, Essence and Omdia House. They help us out, but we have volunteers to come on a regular basis. They're volunteers every Saturday, 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. We harvest several times during the year, and we're getting ready to plant for fall and winter crops right now. It would be remiss of me if I didn't mention the grocery store that we're open, a cooperative model. We have an advisory panel of about 22 people made up of Homewood residents, retail grocery, grocery store experience, and it's going to be called Freedom Foods at the House of Mana, who our farm manager, Dina Free Blackwell, owns. We're starting membership next month, but we break ground on November 1st, and we will be opening up in the spring of 2023. We're excited about that. It's been a long time. Your background, though, was originally in finance and banking. Yes. And uh, urban gardening was, was your hobby and mm, it was. something you enjoyed doing. Then you and f- some of your friends got together to teach gardening to your mm-hmm. children. Words quickly spread among the neighbors, didn't they? Yeah, it did. The children wanted to come and help, and it was a lot of them. When we first started, it was 12 of us, and between of us, we had 17 children. So that next season, the children in the community wanted to help. It was a lot of them. Not that we couldn't handle the children. We have children, and some were even teachers and educators. But we wanted their families to learn well, this knowledge as well. And the children do teach them. So that's how we got started. And then after that, I already had a background in housing and anti-gentrification activism. So I started getting invited, as you know, to meetings and things like that. And it led on to a full career, and I love it. Occasionally people ask me about taxes and things like that. Sure. But I'm done with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for someone to do my taxes, actually. Rick Weeb, you've said you have, and I quote, uh, six phenomenal kids. I do. Did they eat their vegetables? Yes, they do. And funny thing about that, I've like all of them grow food to a capacity. The two youngest who are 10 and 12 have been doing it practically all their life, right? But when my 12-year-old Oba was around three, we grew our own broccoli. So that's how he started liking broccoli. And I remember my oldest daughter was making something, and she put cheese in it. And he was like, no, it's about four, three, four. You don't put cheese in broccoli. So my 10-year-old, I want to say when she was about seven, let's experiment with some asparagus. And she loves asparagus. No, I'm sorry. Let me start over. It wasn't asparagus. It was um, Brussels sprouts at seven. How many children? Or she might have been younger. I still don't eat them. See? Don't. (laughs) And and I was like, oh, but the way they grow, they grow in clusters and they're real pretty. So she was one of them little six, seven-year-old girls who just love Brussels sprouts, which is awesome. So we learned that children, when they grow their own food, they're going to eat it more. But, yeah, all my children eat their vegetables. I really don't have that problem. Thank goodness. Yeah. You've talked about the need to pass on fraying generational knowledge of how to garden, and that's one of the reasons you took action and became a leader in this space. And you're growing foods with historical significance to Mm -hmm. the black community in Pittsburgh. Could you say a little more about that? Collard greens, okra, tomatoes, those are the main ones. Different lettuces, not that our people can't experience other foods to grow. I, I try to grow something new every year. 
there are other things, and we have honey in Homewood. I would say we have the best honey in the region. However, culturally appropriate foods are important in our community because what we've seen is people coming outside of our community. And I've experienced this working at other farms where we would have farms then, and it was like all this kale. Not that people in Homewood and the Hill District don't eat kale, but they would say, I prefer collards or mustard greens, so you have to listen to the people when you have all these kale and it's not selling like you think it would. Yeah, we eat squash too and zucchini, but these are what we prefer that's important in our community. I personally like mixed greens and things like that and edibles, but everyone doesn't. Some people just prefer lettuce. And are you finding people reconnecting to sort of the history of food? and That too, which yeah. is important in our team. And sometimes because of living in food or apartheid areas, you have people just shopping at corner stores. And this happens for generations. They may not know how to prepare certain food, even if it's culturally relevant to us. Or these food just might be, let's take greens. They just might be prepared during holidays for tradition, which is fine. But there are families that eat them every week or every day. So we have found ourselves teaching people how to prepare the foods as well. So you do cooking classes? Well, when we would do our farmers, free farmers market, we would have chef demos and things like that and recipe cards to go with that. That's important because, once again, that's how food apartheid look. You're just going to go get something frozen and putting it in when here's something fresh. We would get pulled back about growing your own food and things like that, but that's what happens in food apartheid neighborhoods for generations. I've always wondered if you could have a meal based on the things you grow in your garden from one of the world's top chefs. What would you want them to make for you? Greens gumbo. Greens, tomatoes, and okra. Really, for real. Maybe with some onions. I would like that. That would be great. Sounds delicious. Yeah, you have a chef in mind, Andrew. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This podcast is called We Can Be... When you think of our community or our country or our world, what do you think we can be? I think we can be resilient. I think we can be peaceful. And I also think that we can be equitable if we just listen to one another. And I think we can be teachers to each other, young and old. I learned from my elders and the youth as well. They teach me a lot. I think at the end of the day, we can be community-orientated to do what we got to do, not just for our communities, but others as well.